Chapter 60, Part 1 of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Schism of the Greeks and Latins. State of Constantinople. Revolt of the Bulgarians. Isaac Angelus, dethroned by his brother Alexius. Origin of the Fourth Crusade. Alliance of the French and Venetians with the son of Isaac. Their naval expedition to Constantinople. The two sieges and final conquest of the city by the Latins. The restoration of the Western Empire by Charlemagne was speedily followed by the separation of the Greek and Latin churches. A religious and national animosity still divides the two largest communions of the Christian world. And the schism of Constantinople, by alienating her most useful allies and provoking her most dangerous enemies, has precipitated the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in the East. In the course of the present history, the aversion of the Greeks for the Latins has been often visible and conspicuous. It was originally derived from the disdain of servitude, inflamed, after the time of Constantine, by the pride of equality or dominion, and finally exasperated by the preference which their rebellious subjects had given to the alliance of the Franks. In every age the Greeks were proud of their superiority in profane and religious knowledge. They had first received the light of Christianity. They had pronounced the decrees of the seven general councils. They alone possessed the language of scripture and philosophy. Nor should the barbarians, immersed in the darkness of the West, presumed to argue on the high and mysterious questions of theological science. Those barbarians despised in their turn the restless and subtle levity of the Orientals, the authors of every heresy, and blessed their own simplicity, which was content to hold the tradition of the apostolic church. Yet in the seventh century the synods of Spain and afterwards of France, improved or corrupted the Nicene Creed on the mysterious subject of the third person of the Trinity. In the long controversies of the East, the nature and generation of the Christ had been scrupulously defined, and the well-known relation of father and son seemed to convey a faint image to the human mind. The idea of birth was less analogous to the Holy Spirit, who, instead of a divine gift or attribute, was considered by the Catholics as a substance, a person, a god. He was not begotten, but in the orthodox style he proceeded. Did he proceed from the Father alone, perhaps by the Son, or from the Father and the Son? The first of these opinions was asserted by the Greeks, the second by the Latins, and the addition to the Nicene Creed of the word filioque 
kindled the flame of discord between the Oriental and the Gallic churches. In the origin of the disputes, the Roman pontiffs affected a character of neutrality and moderation. They condemned the innovation, but they acquiesced in the sentiment of the transalpine brethren. They seemed desirous of casting a veil of silence and charity over the superfluous research and in the correspondence of Charlemagne and Leo III, the Pope assumes the liberality of a statesman, and the Prince descends to the passions and prejudices of a priest. But the orthodoxy of Rome spontaneously obeyed the impulse of the temporal policy, and the filioque, which Leo wished to erase, was transcribed in the symbol and chanted in the liturgy of the Vatican. The Nicene and Athanasian creeds are held as the Catholic faith, without which none can be saved, and both Papists and Protestants must now sustain and return the anathemas of the Greeks, who deny the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Son, as well as from the Father. Such articles of faith are not susceptible of treaty, but the rules of discipline will vary in remote and independent churches. And the reason, even of divines, might allow that the difference is inevitable and harmless. The craft or superstition of Rome has imposed on her priests and deacons the rigid obligation of celibacy. Among the Greeks it is confined to the bishops, the loss is compensated by dignity, or annihilated by age, and the parochial clergy, the papas, enjoy the conjugal society of the wives whom they have married before their entrance into holy orders. A question concerning the Azimes was fiercely debated in the 11th century, and the essence of the Eucharist was supposed in the East and West to depend on the use of leavened or unleavened bread. Shall I mention in a serious history the furious reproaches that were urged against the Latins, who for a long while remained on the defensive? They neglected to abstain, according to the apostolical decree, from things strangled and from blood. They fasted, a Jewish observance, on the Saturday of each week. During the first week of Lent, they permitted the use of milk and cheese. Their infirm monks were indulged in the taste of flesh, and animal grease was substituted for the want of vegetable oil. The holy chrism or unction in baptism was reserved to the episcopal order. The bishops, as the bridegrooms of their churches, were decorated with rings. Their priests shaved their faces and baptized by a single immersion. Such were the crimes which provoked the zeal of the patriarchs of Constantinople, and which were justified with equal zeal by the doctors of the Latin church. Bigotry and national aversion are powerful magnifiers of every object of dispute. But the immediate cause of the schism of the Greeks may be traced in the emulation of the leading prelates, 
who maintained the supremacy of the old metropolis, superior to all, and of the reigning capital, inferior to none in the Christian world. About the middle of the ninth century, Photius, an ambitious layman, the captain of the guards and principal secretary, was promoted by merit and favour to the more desirable office of Patriarch of Constantinople. In science, even ecclesiastical science, he surpassed the clergy of the age, and the purity of his morals has never been impeached. But his ordination was hasty, his rise was irregular, and Ignatius, his abdicated predecessor, was yet supported by the public compassion and the obstinacy of his adherents. They appealed to the tribunal of Nicholas I, one of the proudest and most aspiring of the Roman pontiffs, who embraced the welcome opportunity of judging and condemning his rival of the East. Their quarrel was embittered by a conflict of jurisdiction over the king and nation of the Bulgarians. Nor was their recent conversion to Christianity of much avail to either prelate, unless he could number the proselytes among the subjects of his power. With the aid of his court, the Greek patriarch was victorious, but in the furious contest he deposed in his turn the successor of St. Peter, and involved the Latin church in the reproach of heresy and schism. Photius sacrificed the peace of the world to a short and precarious reign. He fell with his patron the Caesar Bardas, and Basil the Macedonian, performed an act of justice in the restoration of Ignatius, whose age and dignity had not been sufficiently respected. From his monastery, or prison, Photius solicited the favour of the emperor by pathetic complaints and artful flattery, and the eyes of his rival were scarcely closed when he was again restored to the throne of Constantinople. After the death of Basil, he experienced the vicissitudes of courts and the ingratitude of a royal pupil. The patriarch was again deposed, and in his last solitary hours he might regret the freedom of a secular and studious life. In each revolution, the breath, the nod of the sovereign, had been accepted by a submissive clergy and a synod of three hundred bishops was always prepared to hail the triumph or to stigmatise the fall of the holy or the execrable Photius. By a delusive promise of succour or reward, the popes were tempted to countenance these various proceedings, and the synods of Constantinople were ratified by their epistles or legates, but the court and the people, Ignatius and Photius, were equally adverse to their claims. Their ministers were insulted or imprisoned. The procession of the Holy Ghost was forgotten. Bulgaria was forever annexed to the Byzantine throne, and the schism was prolonged by their rigid censure of all the multiplied ordinations of an irregular patriarch. The darkness and corruption of the 10th century suspended the intercourse without reconciling the minds 
of the two nations. But when the Norman sword restored the churches of Apulia to the jurisdiction of Rome, the departing flock was warned by a petulant epistle of the Greek patriarch to avoid and abhor the errors of the Latins. The rising majesty of Rome could no longer brook the insolence of a rebel, and Michael Cariolarius was excommunicated in the heart of Constantinople by the Pope's legates. Shaking the dust from their feet, they deposited on the altar of St. Sophia a darful anathema, which enumerates the seven mortal heresies of the Greeks, and devotes the guilty teachers and their unhappy sectaries to the eternal society of the devil and his angels. According to the emergencies of the church and state, a friendly correspondence was sometimes resumed, the language of charity and concord was sometimes affected. But the Greeks have never recanted their errors. The popes have never repealed their sentence. And from this thunderbolt we may date the consummation of the schism. It was enlarged by each ambitious step of the Roman pontiffs. The emperors blushed and trembled at the ignominious fate of their royal brethren of Germany, and the people were scandalized by the temporal power and military life of the Latin clergy. The aversion of the Greeks and Latins was nourished and manifested in the three first expeditions to the Holy Land. Alexius Comnenus contrived the absence, at least, of the formidable pilgrims. His successors, Manuel and Isaac Angelus, conspired with the Muslims for the ruin of the greatest princes of the Franks, and their crooked and malignant policy was seconded by the active and voluntary obedience of every order of their subjects. Of this hostile temper, a large portion may doubtless be ascribed to the difference of language, dress, and manners, which severs and alienates the nations of the globe. The pride, as well as the prudence, of the sovereign was deeply wounded by the intrusion of foreign armies, that claimed a right of traversing his dominions and passing under the walls of his capital. His subjects were insulted and plundered by the rude strangers of the West and the hatred of the pusillanimous Greeks was sharpened by secret envy of the bold and pious enterprises of the Franks. But these profane causes of national enmity were fortified and inflamed by the venom of religious zeal. Instead of a kind embrace, a hospitable reception from their Christian brethren of the East, every tongue was taught to repeat the names of schismatic and heretic, more odious to an orthodox ear than those of pagan and infidel. Instead of being loved for the general conformity of faith and worship, they were abhorred for some rules of discipline, some questions of theology, in which themselves or their teachers might differ from the Oriental Church. In the crusade of Louis the Seventh, the Greek clergy 
washed and purified the altars which had been defiled by the sacrifice of a French priest. The companions of Frederick Barbarossa deplore the injuries which they endured, both in word and deed, from the peculiar rancour of the bishops and monks. Their prayers and sermons excited the people against the impious barbarians, and the patriarch is accused of declaring that the faithful might obtain the redemption of all their sins by the extirpation of the schismatics. An enthusiast named Dorotheus alarmed the fears and restored the confidence of the emperor by a prophetic assurance that the German heretic, after assaulting the gate of Blachernes, would be made a signal example of the divine vengeance. The passage of these mighty air armies were rare and perilous events, but the Crusades introduced a frequent and familiar intercourse between the two nations, which enlarged their knowledge without abating their prejudices. The wealth and luxury of Constantinople demanded the productions of every climate these imports were balanced by the art and labour of her numerous inhabitants. Her situation invites the commerce of the world, and in every period of her existence that commerce has been in the hands of foreigners. After the decline of Amalfi, the Venetians, Pisans and Genoese introduced their factories and settlements into the capital of the empire. Their services were rewarded with honours and immunities. They acquired the possession of lands and houses. Their families were multiplied by marriages with the natives. And, after the toleration of a Mohammedan mosque, it was impossible to interdict the churches of the Roman rite. The two wives of Manuel Comnenus were of the race of the Franks. The first, a sister-in-law of the Emperor Conrad. The second, a daughter of the Prince of Antioch. He obtained for his son Alexius, a daughter of Philip Augustus, King of France. And he bestowed his own daughter on a Marquis of Montferrat, who was educated and dignified in the palace of Constantinople. The Greek encountered the arms, and aspired to the empire of the West. He esteemed the valour and trusted the fidelity of the Franks. Their military talents were unfitly recompensed by the lucrative offices of judges and treasures. The policy of Manuel had solicited the alliance of the Pope, and the popular voice accused him of a partial bias to the nation and religion of the Latins. During his reign, and that of his successor Alexius, they were exposed at Constantinople to the reproach of foreigners, heretics, and favourites, and this triple guilt was severely expiated in the tumult which announced the return and elevation of Andronicus. The people rose in arms. From the Asiatic shore the tyrant dispatched his troops and galleys to assist the national revenge and the hopeless resistance of the strangers served only to justify the rage and sharpen the daggers of the assassins. Neither age nor sex nor the ties of friendship or kindred could save the victims of national hatred 
and avarice and religious zeal. The Latins were slaughtered in their houses and in the streets. Their quarter was reduced to ashes. The clergy were burnt in their churches and the sick in their hospitals. And some estimate may be formed of the slain from the clemency which solved above four thousand Christians in perpetual slavery to the Turks. The priests and monks were the loudest and most active in the destruction of the schismatics, and they chanted a thanksgiving to the Lord when the head of a Roman cardinal, the Pope's legate, was severed from his body, fastened to the tail of a dog, and dragged with savage mockery through the city. The more diligent of the strangers had retreated on the first alarm to their vessels, and escaped through the Hellespont from the scene of blood. In their flight they burnt and ravaged two hundred miles of the sea-coast, inflicted a severe revenge on the guiltless subjects of the empire, marked the priests and monks as their peculiar enemies, and compensated by the accumulation of plunder the loss of their property and friends. On their return they exposed to Italy and Europe the wealth and weakness, the perfidy and malice of the Greeks, whose vices were painted as the genuine characters of heresy and schism. The scruples of the first crusaders had neglected the fairest opportunities of securing, by the possession of Constantinople, the way to the Holy Land. Domestic revolution invited, and almost compelled, the French and Venetians to achieve the conquest of the Roman Empire of the East. In the series of the Byzantine princes, I have exhibited the hypocrisy and ambition, the tyranny and fall of Andronicus, the last male of the Comnenian family who reigned at Constantinople. The revolution which cast him headlong from the throne saved and exalted Isaac Angelus, who descended by the females from the same imperial dynasty. The successor of a second Nero might have found it an easy task to deserve the esteem and affection of his subjects. They sometimes had reason to regret the administration of Andronicus. The sound and vigorous mind of the tyrant was capable of discerning the connection between his own and the public interest, and while he was feared by all who could inspire him with fear, the unsuspected people and the remote provinces might bless the inexorable justice of their master. But his successor was vain and jealous of the supreme power, which he wanted courage and abilities to exercise. His vices were pernicious, his virtues, if he possessed any virtues, were useless to mankind, and the Greeks, who imputed their calamities to his negligence, denied him the merit of any transient or accidental benefits of the times. Isaac slept on the throne, and was awakened only by the sound of pleasure, his vacant hours were amused by comedians and buffoons, and even to these buffoons the emperor was an object of contempt. 
his feasts and buildings exceeded the examples of royal luxury. The number of his eunuchs and domestics amounted to twenty thousand, and a daily sum of four thousand pounds of silver would swell to four millions sterling the annual expense of his household and table. His poverty was relieved by oppression and the public discontent was inflamed by equal abuses in the collection and the application of the revenue. While the Greeks numbered the days of their servitude, a flattering prophet, whom he rewarded with the dignity of patriarch, assured him of a long and victorious reign of thirty-two years, during which he should extend his sway to Mount Libanus and his conquests beyond the Euphrates but his only step towards the accomplishment of the prediction was a splendid and scandalous embassy to Saladin, to demand the restitution of the Holy Sepulchre, and to propose an offensive and defensive league with the enemy of the Christian name. In these unworthy hands of Isaac and his brother, the remains of the Greek empire crumbled into dust, the island of Cyprus, whose name excites the ideas of elegance and pleasure, was usurped by his namesake, a Comnenian prince, and by a strange concatenation of events, the sword of our English Richard bestowed that kingdom on the house of Lusignan, a rich compensation for the loss of Jerusalem. The honour of the monarchy and the safety of the capital were deeply wounded by the revolt of the Bulgarians and Wallachians. Since the victory of the second Basil, they had supported, above a hundred and seventy years, the loose dominion of the Byzantine princes. But no effectual measures had been adopted to impose the yoke of laws and manners on these savage tribes. By the command of Isaac, their sole means of subsistence their flocks and herds, were driven away to contribute towards the pomp of the royal nuptials, and their fierce warriors were exasperated by the denial of equal rank and pay in the military service. Peter and Assan, two powerful chiefs of the race of the ancient kings, asserted their own rights and the national freedom. The demoniac impostors proclaimed to the crowd that their glorious patron, St. Demetrius, had forever deserted the cause of the Greeks, and the conflagration spread from the banks of the Danube to the hills of Macedonia and Thrace. After some faint efforts, Isaac Angelus and his brother acquiesced in their independence, and the imperial troops were soon discouraged by the bones of their fellow soldiers that were scattered along the passes of Mount Hemus. By the arms and policy of John or Joannices, the second kingdom of Bulgaria was firmly established. The subtle barbarian sent an embassy to Innocent III to acknowledge himself a genuine son of Rome in descent and religion, and humbly received from the Pope the license of coining money the royal title, and a Latin archbishop or patriarch. The Vatican exulted in the spiritual conquest of Bulgaria, the first object of the schism. 
and if the Greeks could have preserved the prerogatives of the church, they would gladly have resigned the rights of the monarchy. The Bulgarians were malicious enough to pray for the long life of Isaac Angelus, the surest pledge of their freedom and prosperity. Yet their chiefs could involve in the same indiscriminate contempt the family and nation of the emperor. In all the Greeks, said Assan to his troops, the same climate and character and education will be productive of the same fruits. Behold my lance, continued the warrior, and the long streamers that float in the wind. They differ only in colour. They are formed of the same silk, and fashioned by the same workmen. Nor has the stripe that is stained in purple any superior price or value above its fellows. Several of these candidates for the purple successfully rose and fell under the empire of Isaac. A general who had repelled the fleets of Sicily was driven to revolt and ruin by the ingratitude of the prince, and his luxurious repose was disturbed by secret conspiracies and popular insurrections. The emperor was saved by accident, or the merit of his servants. He was at length oppressed by an ambitious brother, who, for the hope of a precarious diadem, forgot the obligations of nature, of loyalty, and of friendship, while Isaac in the Thracian valleys pursued the idle and solitary pleasures of the chase, his brother, Alexius Angelus, was invested with the purple by the unanimous suffrage of the camp, the capital and the clergy subscribed their choice, and the vanity of the new sovereign rejected the name of his fathers for the lofty and royal appellation of the Comnenian race. On the despicable character of Isaac, I have exhausted the language of contempt, and can only add that in a reign of eight years, the baser Alexius was supported by the masculine vices of his wife Euphrosyne. The first intelligence of his fall was conveyed to the late emperor by the hostile aspect and pursuit of the guards, no longer his own. He fled before them above fifty miles as far as Stagira in Macedonia, but the fugitive, without an object or a follower, was arrested, brought back to Constantinople, deprived of his eyes, and confined in a lonesome tower on a scanty allowance of bread and water. At the moment of the revolution, his son Alexius, whom he educated in the hope of empire, was twelve years of age. He was spared by the usurper, and reduced to attend his triumph both in peace and war. But as the army was encamped on the seashore, an Italian vessel facilitated the escape of the royal youth, and in the disguise of a common sailor he eluded the search of his enemies, passed the Hellespont, and found a secure refuge in the Isle of Sicily. After saluting the threshold of the apostles, and imploring the protection of Pope Innocent III, Alexius accepted the kind invitation of his sister Irene, the wife of Philip of Swabia, King of the Romans. 
but in his passage through Italy he heard that the flower of western chivalry was assembled at Venice for the deliverance of the Holy Land, and a ray of hope was kindled in his bosom that their invincible swords might be employed in his father's restoration. About ten or twelve years after the loss of Jerusalem, the nobles of France were again summoned to the holy war by the voice of a third prophet, less extravagant, perhaps, than Peter the Hermit, but far below St. Bernard in the merit of an orator and a statesman. An illiterate priest of the neighbourhood of Paris, Fulk of Neuilly, forsook his parochial duty to assume the more flattering character of a popular and itinerant missionary. The fame of his sanctity and miracles was spread over the land. He declaimed with severity and vehemence against the vices of the age, and his sermons, which he preached in the streets of Paris, converted the robbers, the usurers, the prostitutes, and even the doctors and scholars of the university. No sooner did Innocent Third ascend the chair of St. Peter than he proclaimed in Italy, Germany, and France the obligation of a new crusade. The eloquent pontiff described the ruin of Jerusalem, the triumph of the pagans, and the shame of Christendom. His liberality proposed the redemption of sins, a plenary indulgence to all who should serve in Palestine, either a year in person, or two years by a substitute, and among his legates and orators who blew the sacred trumpet, Fulk of Neuilly was the loudest and most successful. The situation of the principal monarchs was averse to the pious summons. The Emperor Frederick II was a child, and his kingdom of Germany was disputed by the rival houses of Brunswick and Swabia, the memorable factions of the Guelphs and Ghibellines. Philip Augustus of France had performed, and could not be persuaded to renew, the perilous vow. But as he was not less ambitious of praise than of power, he cheerfully instituted a perpetual fund for the defence of the Holy Land. Richard of England was satiated with the glory and misfortunes of his first adventure, and he presumed to deride the exhortations of Fulk of Neuilly, who was not abashed in the presence of kings. "'You advise me,' said Plantagenet, "'to dismiss my three daughters, pride, avarice, and incontinence. "'I bequeath them to the most deserving, "'my pride to the Knights Templars, "'my avarice to the monks of Sisto, "'and my incontinence to the prelates.' "'But the preacher was heard and obeyed by the great vassals.' the princes of the second order, and Theobald, or Thibault, Count of Champagne, was the foremost in the holy race. The valiant youth, at the age of twenty-two years, was encouraged by the domestic examples of his father, who marched in the second crusade, and of his elder brother, who had ended his days in Palestine with the title of King of Jerusalem, 
2,200 knights owed service and homage to his peerage. The nobles of Champagne excelled in all the exercises of war, and by his marriage with the heiress of Navarre, Thibault could draw a band of hardy Gascons from either side of the Pyrenean mountains. His companion in arms was Louis, Count of Blois and Chartres, like himself of regal lineage, for both princes were nephews, at the same time, of the kings of France and England. In a crowd of prelates and barons who imitated their zeal, I distinguish the birth and merit of Matthew of Montmorency, the famous Simon of Montfort, the scourge of the Albigeois, and a valiant no noble, Geoffrey of Viardouin, Marshal of Champagne, who has condescended, in the rude idiom of his age and country, to write or dictate an original narrative of the counsels and actions in which he bore a memorable part. At the same time, Baldwin, Count of Flanders, who had married the sister of Thibault, assumed the cross at Bruges with his brother Henry, and the principal knights and citizens of that rich and industrious province. The vow which the chiefs had pronounced in churches, they ratified in tournaments. The operations of the war were debated in full and frequent assemblies, and it was resolved to seek the deliverance of Palestine in Egypt, a country since Saladin's death which was almost ruined by famine and civil war. But the fate of so many royal armies displayed the toils and perils of a land expedition and if the Flemings dwelt along the ocean, the French barons were destitute of ships and ignorant of navigation. They embraced the wise resolution of choosing six deputies or representatives, of whom Viardouin was one, with a discretionary trust to direct the motions and to pledge the faith of the whole confederacy. The maritime states of Italy were alone possessed of the means of transporting the holy warriors with their arms and horses, and the six deputies proceeded to Venice to solicit, on motives of piety or interest, the aid of that powerful republic. In the invasion of Italy by Attila, I have mentioned the flight of the Venetians from the fallen cities of the continent and their obscure shelter in the chain of islands that lie in the extremity of the Adriatic Gulf. In the midst of the waters, free, indigent, laborious, and inaccessible, they gradually coalesced into a republic. The first foundations of Venice were laid in the island of Rialto, and the annual election of the twelve tribunes was superseded by the permanent office of a duke or doge. On the verge of the two empires, the Venetians exult in the belief of primitive and perpetual independence. Against the Latins, their antique freedom has been asserted by the sword, and may be justified by the pen. Charlemagne himself resigned all claims of sovereignty to the islands of the Adriatic Gulf. His son Pepin was repulsed in the attacks of the Lagunas or canals, too deep for the cavalry and too shallow for the vessels. And in every age, under the German Caesars, the lands of the Republic have been clearly distinguished from the Kingdom of Italy. 
but the inhabitants of Venice were considered by themselves, by strangers, and by their sovereigns, as an inalienable portion of the Greek empire. In the ninth and tenth centuries, the proofs of their subjection are numerous and unquestionable, and the vain titles, the servile honours, of the Byzantine court, so ambitiously solicited by their dukes, would have degraded the magistrates of a free people. But the bands of this dependence, which was never absolute or rigid, were imperceptibly relaxed by the ambition of Venice and the weakness of Constantinople. Obedience was softened into respect, privilege ripened into prerogative, and the freedom of domestic government was fortified by the independence of foreign dominion. The maritime cities of Istria and Dalmatia bowed to the sovereigns of the Adriatic, and when they armed against the Normans in the cause of Alexius, the emperor applied not to the duty of his subjects, but to the gratitude and generosity of his faithful allies. The sea was their patrimony, the western parts of the Mediterranean, from Tuscany to Gibraltar, were indeed abandoned to their rivals of Pisa and Genoa. But the Venetians acquired an early and lucrative share of the commerce of Greece and Egypt. Their riches increased with the increasing demand of Europe, their manufactures of silk and glass, perhaps the institution of their bank, are of high antiquity and they enjoyed the fruits of their industry in the magnificence of public and private life. To assert her flag, to avenge her injuries, to protect the freedom of navigation, the Republic could launch and man a fleet of a hundred galleys, and the Greeks, the Saracens, and the Normans were encountered by her naval arms. The Franks of Syria were assisted by the Venetians in the reduction of the sea-coast, but their zeal was neither blind nor disinterested. And in the conquest of Tyre they shared the sovereignty of a city, the first seat of the commerce of the world. The policy of Venice was marked by the avarice of a trading and the insolence of a maritime power. Yet her ambition was prudent, nor did she often forget that if armed galleys were the effect and safeguard, Merchant vessels were the cause and supply of her greatness. In her religion she avoided the schisms of the Greeks, without yielding a servile obedience to the Roman pontiff, and a free intercourse with the infidels of every clime appears to have allayed betimes the fever of superstition. Her primitive government was a loose mixture of democracy and monarchy, the doge was elected by the votes of the General Assembly. As long as he was popular and successful, he reigned with the pomp and authority of a prince. But in the frequent revolutions of the state, he was deposed or banished or slain by the justice or injustice of the multitude. The twelfth century produced the first rudiments of the wise and jealous aristocracy, which has reduced the doge to a pageant and the people to a cipher. End of chapter 60, part 1 
of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Recording by Andrew Coleman.